Picking up on a theme that we already encountered previously in Sefer Dvarim, in Parshas Re'eh, the Torah in this coming week's Parsha, Parshas Kitavo, continues with and elaborates on the ceremony, the very public ceremony that will take place in the future when the Jewish people enter Eretz Yisrael under the leadership of Yehoshua, where there will be this very public ceremony of brachos and klolos, blessings and curses, on the two mountains, Har Grizim and Har Evel. And here, in Perak Chavzayin, the Torah delineates with specificity the various curses, 12 different curses, that are each followed by the Jewish people saying Amen, attesting to and agreeing to the conditions and the consequences of this behavior and the curse that they would endure if they violated these codes. What is striking is that all of the initial curses and poor behaviors that are referred to are all very specific examples of sins. For example, Oror ha'isha sher ya'aseh pesa lo Hashem. That right away, who is cursed? Someone who makes some kind of an engraven image or an idol. Oror makla aviv ve'imo. Cursed is someone who is disrespectful to his parents. Someone who distorts the judgment of the convert or of the, the widow or the orphan. Someone who has sexual perversions is also cursed, etc., etc. And then finally we get to the very last of the list. Cursed is the one who does not uphold the words of the Torah to perform them. And once again, the whole nation answered, Amen. This is a very... Uh, surprising inclusion in the list because it is so obviously inconsistent with the pattern that has been previously established. Everything until now has been a very specific Avera, and one could certainly analyze why these are the specific things mentioned and not other things, but for our purposes, they're all referring to very specific things. We understand what the Torah has in mind. And here, we have something that is more general and perhaps even vague. And the question is, what is this referring to? Is this an allusion to a specific sin? And if so, what is that? And why not delineate it more clearly? And if not, if it really is just a general and vague problem or a mistake, what general issue, what particular mistake or problem is it that deserves such a curse? And while there are opinions, especially in Chazal, that do see this as an allusion to a particular or specific Avera, I'd like to share a machlokas in the classical mafarshim here on the Pasuk between Rashi and Ramban. And both Rashi and Ramban agree fundamentally with the simple reading of the text, which conveys the impression, as we already mentioned, that we are dealing not with something specific, but a more general, overarching theme. However, they have a slight but very interesting and important debate as to what that specific theme is. Rashi says as follows. What is being referred to here is Kan Kolales Kolatora. As the Pasuk itself indicates, this is a summary uh, commitment. This is referring to the entire Torah in toto. The kibluha alehem ba'Allah And this is in allusion to the fact that at the end of this ceremony, now that they've entered in Eretz Yisrael, into this new stage of Jewish history, the ideal stage with not only the religious nature, but the national and peoplehood and sovereignty in Eretz Yisrael, the Jewish people take this, um, make this commitment and in fact, Rashi alludes to something which we know from the Gemara, that the word arur can not only mean curse, but also a shvua. And Rashi says that in this moment, 
at the end of the uh, ceremony here in Hargrizim and Harevel, the people are publicly accepting and making a shavua, a commitment, that they are willing to accept the entire Torah, they're willing to observe the entire Torah, and it's so doing, they are worthy to enter the land. This certainly is very consistent with the simple reading of the text, and it's in a certain sense very beautiful, but if this last of the curses is really a shua and really in fact a commitment to observe the entire Torah, so then it kind of begs the question, what did we need the previous psukim for? What did we need all the previous curses for? If they were all delineating very specific Averos, and then comes this last one and says, you have to keep everything. So then what did you gain by the first ones? So perhaps, perhaps, bothered by this question, the Ramban, after having quoted Rashi, the Ramban offers his own interpretation, which is slightly different. And Rashi says that this, excuse me, the Ramban says that this Kabbalah is for the Jewish people not to observe all the mitzvos, as Rashi said, but rather, Shiasa the mitzvos belibo view be'enav emes. It's not about necessarily doing the mitzvos, that's obvious, but rather that by doing them, we're doing them because we believe the mitzvos are true. View be'enav emes. We truly believe in them. We accept the validity the truth of the Torah and mitzvot. And furthermore, says Ramban, we believe that we will be rewarded if we do the mitzvot, and that those who don't do the mitzvot will be punished. That is the commitment. However, says Ramban, when it comes to this curse, merely violating an Avera, not that that's a good thing, but from the perspective of this pasuk and this commitment, merely violating an Avera, if it's done out of weakness or carelessness, in some form of teyavon or shogeg, that will not trigger this curse. What triggers this curse, what is required a commitment, and what will be a violation thereof, is only if a person is yachpor ba'achas mehen, if a person denies the validity of one of the mitzvos, or tiyeh b'tela, or even if he thought it was once valid, he thinks it's no longer relevant anymore. Only then, says Ramban, if a person denies the truth of a mitzvah, or denies the eternal relevance of a particular mitzvah, only then is he cursed. Hine ze'aror. Only is that person cursed if it's that. But if he's just weak or careless, of course that's not a good thing, but that's not what this is about. This is about committing to the eternal truth and validity of the Torah. And Ramban proves inter- his interpretation with a very precise reading of the Pasuk. As he points out, the Pasuk does not say, Asher lo ya'aseh, is Divrei HaTorah Azos, which would be better for Rashi. Cursed is the person who doesn't keep the whole Torah. Rather, it says, Asher lo yakum, someone who doesn't accept the validity of the entire Torah. As the Pasuk says in Midgalus Esther, Kimu Aram, they accepted the validity of the Torah. Accepting the principles of the Torah, in a certain sense, is more important even than their performance. The outset of our Parsha introduces us to the mitzvah of Bikurim. And the Torah tells us, When you'll come to the land that Hashem will give you as an inheritance, then you will have the mitzvah of Bikurim, as is delineated and discussed in the subsequent sukkim. Very interesting that the Medrash in the Sifrei, here at the outset of our Parsha, has the following very fascinating, but also enigmatic and somewhat confusing comment. Says the Medrash, Do this mitzvah, this mitzvah which we're about to tell you about, the mitzvah Bikurim, and in a reward, in merit of that mitzvah, 
you will enter into the land. Do mitzvah bikurim, and in the merit of that, you will tikanes laaretz, enter Eretz Yisrael. And the obvious question which many ask is, since bikurim is a mitzvah that is mitzvah tuyabaretz, it's a mitzvah that you only fulfill when you're in Eretz Yisrael. It only becomes obligatory after you've already inherited and settled the land. How is it possible that if you do the mitzvah, in the merit of that mitzvah, you'll enter the land? By definition, you'll already have entered and settled the land in order to become a farmer, farm the land, and then have fruit, to, or produce, I should say, and fruit to bring as Bikurim. It seems impossible. That's question number one. Second question one could ask is, Tupsukim uh, later in Pasa Gimel, we read, You'll say, as part of the Bikurim, that I now am coming, I am arriving, Bati El Aretz, to this land that Hashem promised my forefathers. And the impression you get is that this is not something that uh, only the first generation of Jews who entered Eretz Yisrael said when they did the Mitzvah of Bikurim. Rather, this is something that would be part of the ceremony for all generations. And therefore it seems uh, peculiar to put it mildly that a Jewish farmer who may be the son, grandson, and great-grandson, and who knows how many generations of people who already were Toshve uh, Eretz Yisrael, people who already were living in Eretz Yisrael, and then he, when he brings his Bikurim, is going to start talking about how excited he is that Kibasi al Aretz, I came to the land, but he didn't come to the land. He was a, a multi-generational uh, Sabra. He's been here for who knows how long. So in order to answer both of these questions, Rav Schwab, in his beautiful Sefer, Mayan Beis HaShueva, in the opening uh, comments that he has on our Parsha, says the following. He says, you have to understand that this mitzvah and this medrash and these psukim are highlighting a very crucial difference between Eretz Yisrael and all other lands. Shebeshar ha'aratzos harei metzius ha'adam la'aretz. Says Rav Schwab, in any other nation, in any other country, any other land, the very fact you've crossed over the border into that land, one foot in, one step over the border, and you could say that you have achieved bia to the land. You've entered into the land. Right? That's obvious. You cross the border into Israel, you cross the border into the United States, you cross the border within a state or from another state within America uh, or any other country. You now have entered into that land. That's what borders are for. However, Sister Schwab, when it comes to Eretz Yisrael and Eretz HaKadosha, the Holy Land, says the essence of Eretz Yisrael is its sanctity. And as the Mishnah tells us in Masechus Kalim, in fact, the sanctity of Eretz Yisrael is made up of ten increasingly intensive and higher levels of Kedusha. And in fact, the Mishnah tells us that the very borders are just being in Eretz Yisrael, but in the periphery, that's Kadosh for sure, but that's actually the lowest level. And a person only reaches the highest level of Kedusha, the true Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael, when they reach the Harabayas and the Beis HaMikdash. And therefore, says Rav Schwab, Af nimsab even if a person is already in the land, slightly over the border, significantly inside the borders of Eretz Yisrael, still it doesn't matter. Since the whole essence of Eretz Yisrael is its Kedusha, and its most intense and pure form of Kedusha is the Beis HaMikdash, it makes no sense to speak about arriving in Eretz Yisrael, no matter where you're standing, 
until you've gone to the base of Mikdash. In other words, says Rav Shwab, you can't truly have been said to have arrived to be in Eretz Yisrael until you reach, until you visit the base of Mikdash. In fact, he says, this explains answering his second question. That's why all farmers, at whatever generation, no matter how long they've lived in Eretz Yisrael, or how many generations their family have lived in Eretz Yisrael, but all farmers, when they come to bring their Bikurim, they say, By this, by me coming to the base of Mikdash now as a farmer to bring my Bikurim, my first fruits, each time anew, I am Bati El Aretz. I am coming to the land because wherever I live is Kadosh. But it's not the apex of Gedusha. That's only when I come to the, Eretz, to the base of Migdash, which is truly the essence of Eretz Yisrael. Rak achshav biyasi Mikdash, nishlama etzli biyasar. It says Rav Schwab so beautifully, only when we're at the base of Migdash have we completed, have we fully entered in and arrived, and can, can we be said to be present in Eretz Yisrael. And now going back to the opening question that we had on the Medrash, the Sifrei says, do the mitzvah of Bikurim, and in the schar, in the zechus of Bikurim, you will enter Eretz Yisrael. And we ask the obvious question, if you could only give Bikurim once you're already in and settling the land of Eretz Yisrael, how could we say that the mitzvah will be the zechus for you to get Eretz Yisrael? It seems to be illogical. Obviously you already were in Eretz Yisrael, you already settled it, and that's why you were able to have Bikurim. To answer this question, in light of everything we said, concludes of Schwab, this is what the Sifrei means. Sha'idei mitzvah zu zochim lavo el hamikdash. That through this mitzvah, wherever you are in Eretz Yisrael on your farm, in your private land, in wherever shevet you live in, but through this mitzvah, Bikurim, it brings you to the base hamikdash. And only then are you truly considered to have been haknisah amitit l'Eretz Yisrael. So it doesn't mean to settle the land in the schus of the uh, mitzvah Bikurim. Obviously, you already settled it, but rather in the schus of this mitzvah, it brings you to the base of Mikdash, and only when you come to and arrive and are present at the base of Mikdash can it be said that you are truly present and arrived in Eretz Yisrael. Our parsha opens with a detailed description of the mitzvah of Bikurim, the obligation of the Jewish farmer to bring his first fruits to the base of Mikdash, to present them to the Kohen. And then the owner, and this is really the central theme of the presentation in our parsha, recites a declaration of gratitude of Akar Satov to Hashem for his guiding role in Jewish history, culminating on a personal level with the farmer's ability to have this crop brought to the base of Megdash. After the Kohen takes the fruit and lays them before the Mizbeach, the owner declares, Arami Ovidavi, Lavan tried to destroy our forefather Yaakov, and furthermore, Vayared Mitzrayma. And then later Yaakov went down in a small number to Egypt, and eventually we left in great multitudes. But not before the Egyptians also tried to destroy us. They mistreated us, they afflicted us, they forced us into great servitude with difficult work and backbreaking labor. But nevertheless, we continue when we say, Hashem saw our suffering, you heard our cries. And he took us out of Egypt, and we went from strength to strength. And eventually Hashem took us to Eretz Yisrael, the land of Eretz Zavas Chalav Udavash. In other words, the centerpiece of this declaration is an encapsulated review of Jewish history. First we were threatened, then we were saved and made it to the land of Israel. The question, however, is that if we're going to have this crash course in Jewish history, why select these specific examples, these two examples where our people were threatened. 
first of all, just we know there are a lot more than two, unfortunately. So why pick these two? And if these are meant to just be mere examples of the general phenomenon of Hashem's kindness and therefore our Hakar Satov, as He has saved us so many times from destruction, so why not just say in a general sense that we thank Hashem for that? Why mention any specific example? And if there is a need for specific examples, why not just one illustration? Why two? And if whatever it is, if we had to give any specific ones, why pick these two? What about everything that was left out? What about Kriyas Yamsuf, Amalek, the wars with Sichon and Og? What about the Mon in the Midbar, the Be'er? Earlier in history, Yaakov's salvation from the murderous hands of his brother Esav. Why his loved one's feared attack more deserving than Esav's almost, almost really attack? And the Saroshel Esav, there's so many things you could have picked from. What is going on? So to answer these questions, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, in a talk that is included in his collection of Lekute Sichos in Chelek Yudalad, the 14th volume, he explains what animates the choice of these two episodes specifically is that they actually have a deep thematic connection to Bikurim. Rashi, on the opening Pasuk of our Parsha, brings the teaching from the Gemara in Masech the Kiddushin that the mitzvah of Bikurim only became obligatory when the Jews, the Jews had finally divided and fully settled the land of Israel. And every shevet was in their portion, every particular family was in their portion within their shevet. Bikurim was not a mitzvah that became obligatory when the Jews entered the land of Israel, but only after they had conquered and fully and completely settled the land. The Rabbi says that this particular point, that even though they ended up spending years living in Israel before Bikurim, Bikurim only became obligatory when they fully took ownership of the land and possessed it in a very personal and permanent way. This shows, says the Rabbi, that Bikurim was not simply an offering of Hakar Satov, of thanksgiving, for Hashem's gift of the land, because then that would have happened right away, but primarily it was a gift of, it was a acknowledgement of thanksgiving, of Hakar Satov, for our zechus in settling it and making it our permanent home. In the words of the Rebbe, Shabo el hanachla, yashvut kivu'aba, that we came to this place, our destined inheritance, in a permanent settling. Not just that we were there, but we were now permanently at home. It was only then, when we settled in our permanent home, that we truly express our hakar satov, our appreciation. It's not just that Hashem brought us to this land, vivienu el but rather that He gave it to us as a permanent home, this land of Eretz Zavas Chalavudavash, this land so beautiful and flowing with milk and honey. The Lubavitcher Rebbe continues and he explains that understood in this light, we now understand why these two incidents of persecution were particularly chosen to be mentioned. Because both of these instances are when our ancestors were not on the move or on the run. They were living in a place of permanent settlement and apparent security. It was Dafka in these two places that nevertheless enemies arose to try to destroy them. Yaakov had dwelled in Aram, lived with, with Lavan for 20 years, certainly felt that he had a home there. His children eventually lived in Egypt for 210 years. These were not places that were just passing through the night. These were not temporary things, but these were places of real settlement for the Jewish people. And nevertheless, despite the fact that they might have thought that they had found a home in Aram and Mitzrayim respectively, it was Dafka then the persecutions arose from Esav and then later, excuse me, from Lavan and from Mitzrayim. The other persecutions, the other things that we mentioned, they all took place when we were on the run. 
Esav confronted Yaakov when he was traveling. The other miracles took place when we were journeying out of Mitzrayim and we were in the desert wandering. These are times of inherent vulnerability on the run, in the Midbar. But in Laban's home, we felt at home. In Egypt, we felt secure. And it's that fact, the very fact that we were vulnerable even in those circumstances, gives us the greatest appreciation for the gift of our own permanent home of Eretz Yisrael. Bikurim celebrates the Yishuv of Eretz Yisrael, the fact that we have a permanent home in our own land, in the land of Eretz Yisrael. The genuine greatness and generosity of this gift is accented by specifically referencing these two threats, threats that confronted us at times when we weren't on the run, but we thought we had found other temporary homes. Of course, more recent Jewish history has reminded us of this same message, where places where Jews have thought they were home have ultimately turned in the opposite direction as well. Now, of course, even in Eretz Yisrael now, we face threats, and in other times in history, the Jewish people felt threats in Eretz Yisrael. But Eino Doma, of course, being home with your permanent government, your permanent army, your army to defend you, than the feelings of vulnerability that we had anywhere else and earlier in Jewish history. The Torah's description of the mitzvah Bikurim, we are told that the farmer brings his first fruits to the base of Megdash. He comes to the Kohen who is in the base of Megdash at that time. And he says to the Kohen, I declare before Hashem today that I have come to the land that Hashem had sworn to our forefathers to give us. And then the Torah continues here in the opening of our parsha to describe the various stages of the ritual where the Kohen and the farmer each playing their role with the actual fruit, certain things that are done, certain things that the owner continues to say as part of this mitzvah bringing his first fruits to the base of Migdash, the mitzvah of Bikurim. Commenting on that phrase which we mentioned where the farmer says, he says to the Kohen, I'm here is a you know, fruition of Hashem's promise to give the land of Israel to the Jewish people, to my forefathers, Rashi quotes from the Medrash, She'encha kafoi tova. In other words, Rashi is telling us from Chazal, what is the point of all of this? What is the point of the Mitzvah Bikurim? What is the point of this declaration that the owner, the farmer makes now and continues to make when he describes Jewish history and the promise that Hashem fulfilled in giving the Jewish people the land of Israel? It is an expression of gratitude, hakar satov. Or as Rashi says it in the negative, it's a way of showing that we are not ingrates, we are not ungrateful. In fact, we are grateful. The famed mashkiach of the Mir, Rav Yeruchim Levavitz, in his Sefer, Das Chachma Umusr, he asks a very penetrating question. He says, if you look in the Torah itself, in our parsha, especially as amplified and embellished by the Torah Shabal Peh, in the Mishnayis and Mesechas Bikurim, we see that Bikurim is a big deal. It's not just what happens between the farmer and the coin in the base of Migdash, although that's already significant. But it's more than that. The farmer comes from wherever he lives, wherever his farm is, wherever he brings his produce from. By the time he gets to the holy city, by the time he gets to Yerushalayim, as he's walking through the streets of the old city on the way up to the base of Migdash, to Harabayas, the Mishnayas described the incredible procession, really parade-like procession, of the farmer going through the streets of Yerushalayim, all the various shopkeepers and homeowners who live there coming out and serenading him and praising him and accompanying him in great celebration and pomp and circumstance, accompanying this anonymous farmer from, you know, the Galil or wherever he's coming from to bring his first fruits to the Beis HaMikdash. We make a really big deal of it, says Rav Yerucham. And the question is, why? After all, as we saw from Rashi, what's the point of this, of this mitzvah? Hakar Satov, to have gratitude. Is that really such a big deal that deserves this whole procession? 
Now, before you say, what do you mean? Of course, how could anyone ask that question? Of course, having hakar satov, having gratitude is important. It's der heres. The answer is, of course, that's true, and Rav Yerucham knows that. But think about it, in our own lives. Of course, we want to say thank you. We want to teach our children, our grandchildren to say thank you. But when we actually hear them say thank you, do we make a huge deal about it? Or if the opposite, if we, somebody we love, or even ourselves, if we forget to say thank you, is that a huge deal? Is that a terrible thing? Is that the worst thing in the world? And the answer is no. I think in both directions, good or bad, even if well, we all know it's the right thing, we don't make such a big deal about it. And yet, says Rav Yerucham, you see when it comes to the mitzvah of Bikurim, we are making a big deal about it. And it's all for Akar Satov. Why make the, such a big deal, he asks, over what seems to be such a small thing? And the answer, says Rav Yerucham, is that the Torah is coming to teach us the importance of little things. One could have answered that it's highlighting how important gratitude is. But Rav Yerucham goes in a more broad direction. He says, no, yes, on some level we can say that gratitude, Hakar Satov, is a, quote, little thing. And yet, that's exactly the point. The Torah is coming to tell us that, in fact, little things, in fact, all add up to some big thing. Little things are important. He points out that Chazal, in a number of places, in the Medrash and in the Gemara, tell stories of various Chachamim who were Moser Nefesh, they gave up their lives or they suffered, suffered grievous bodily harm just to avoid a specific sin. And says Rav Yerucham, we look at these stories and we say, wow, these are tzaddikim, they went to such extremes. Says Rav Yerucham, we only look at those stories as being so extreme or so out of the ordinary because we don't appreciate that even for one thing, even for one small thing, it's really a big deal. We, by nature, run after the big things, the headline-grabbing th- things. War Mizalzil, we denigrate the small things. And therefore, says Rav Yerucham, on a practical level, the Torah is coming to tell us with the mitzvah Bikurim, that what should we do if we want to sensitize ourselves, if we want to educate ourselves, to realize that, in fact, the little things are, in fact, big? Fake it till you make it, so to speak. Make a big deal out of the little things in our own life, in our children's life, our students' life. Celebrate them. Make a big deal out of the little things. If we do that enough times, then memela, through osmosis, subconsciously, if you will, it'll seep into our consciousness that, in fact, these little things, in fact, are really, really important. That's the practical lesson, the Musra lesson that he derives from the section of Bikurim. But he goes further and makes a more penetrating philosophical point. What the Torah is coming to tell us as a Ruchim, what we have to really realize is, Objectively, there are no such thing as small things. Why? Because even the quote-unquote small things, but everything we do, every mitzvah that we do, is in the presence of the king. Hashem is there, Hashem sees. And it's because he commanded it. So Mamela, if it's in his presence and at his command, it is a big thing. Just like he says by analogy, if we were in the palace doing something in front of the king, if we were doing something for the king that he asked for, if we're in the White House, then there's a procedure, there's a protocol for everything. It's all important. Says Yerucham, it's the same thing in life. Everything we're doing is in the presence of the king. Everything we're doing is because the king wants us to do it. Therefore, by definition, it becomes a big thing. The Ramban makes this point at the end of Parshas Bo, where he talks about the mezuzah. For such a small investment, you put this little mitzvah up on the door, then you forget about it. Says Ramban, if you realize, this little mitzvah contained in the words inside the, the mezuzah, it's a testimonial by accepting this mitzvah, by performing this mitzvah. We are testifying to our belief in God's creation of the world, His active involvement of the world, Hashkacha. That's a big deal. Therefore, says the Ramban, that's why Chazal say in the Mishnah, even things that look small, be just as fastidious, be just as careful, but just as punctilious with even the quote-unquote small mitzvahs. Because each and every one of them is an opportunity to acknowledge and serve the Creator, and therefore by definition they are a big deal. The Ramon is opening comments to Shulchan Aruch, quotes the Apostle, Shivisi Hashem, Tamid, you should be aware of Hashem's presence in front of you at all times. And he explains, because psychologically we understand, if we realize and we feel that we are in Hashem's presence, we won't talk the way we would talk otherwise, we won't act the way we would otherwise. 
In other words, we see from this, says Yerucham, that if you have that mentality that everything is for the king and in the king's presence of Hashem, everything will in fact be a big deal. And the Gemara Brachos tells us when Rabbi Eliezer is dying, his students ask us, teach us Orchos Chaim, teach us the way of the world. And he says, when you're davening, realize you're in front of Hashem. And it's the same idea as we saw here. If we realize that the, we're in front of Hashem, then everything we do, every davening, every mitzvah, will in fact be a big, big thing. In the field of modern psychology, great emphasis is put on happiness and how to find happiness, how to live a life that is happy. Uh, perhaps not as well known, but more importantly, is that from a Jewish perspective, we view happiness and living a life of contentedness and genuine happiness as not only an emotional or psychological benefit, but in fact a supreme religious value, perhaps even an obligation. The Gemara and Tainis and Daf tells us in the name of Eliyahu Hanavi, no less than, that there are two particular people that he alludes to who are in the marketplace, who are B'nai Olam Haba. They have lived such a virtuous life, they will merit the ultimate reward after they pass away. And the Gemara goes on to explain that what was it about these two people who were not great rabbis, they were not very famous, what, what about their lifestyle merited such a great reward? And the Gemara tells us that they were comedians, that they made people happy and they took away their sadness. And whatever other mitzvahs that they did, I'm sure they did many, but the Gemara specifically ascribes the great reward that they will merit because they brought people happiness and took away their sadness. What an incredible statement. Not only should we have greater appreciation for kosher comedians, but this certainly and undoubtedly applies to the entire spectrum of mental health professionals uh, who help people in that regard. Or for that matter, anybody who just uh, brings a smile to someone else's face and gives them a little joy in their life, says the Gemara, that itself is worthy of making you a ben olam haba. What a dramatic statement underlying the importance of happiness in life. Of course, this goes back to the famous Pasuk in Tehillim and Parakuf, Ivdu Hashem Basimcha, Ba'ol Lefanav Bernana. It's not enough to just worship Hashem, but generally we're inspired to and even commanded to live a life generally and specifically religiously of simcha, of happiness. The Tanah de Bel a fascinating Midrashic source, points out something very interesting, that most of the prophets had the difficult task of prophesying uh, difficult prophecies, doom and gloom, predictions of great punishment and destruction of the Jewish people wouldn't uh, follow the mitzvot, and yet Yeshayahu Anavi disproportionately uh, has many comforting and uplifting and positive uh, prophecies. And the Medrash wants to know why Yeshayahu Hanavi was uniquely meritorious, why was he uniquely Zoha to this more uplifting, comforting uh, message. And the Medrash answers, because his whole general attitude towards religious life and devotion was one of Simcha. And apparently he he embodied that even more than other prophets, and specifically because of that attitude of Simcha, he was rewarded with this more uh, you know, enjoyable uh, and uh, fortunate position of being able to give prophecies not of doom and gloom, but in fact of happiness and uplifting uh, other people's spirits, because he himself was a happy person. The Rambam in Hilchus Yisodia Torah in Perak Zion perhaps sums all of this up uh, in a very powerful way. He's working off of other sources in the Gemara, but he points out, bottom line, if you want to have a sublime, uplifting, transcendent religious experience, if you want to really get to the heights of spiritual life uh, and experience, it will only happen if one has simcha, if one has genuine happiness in one's life. If you go around with a heavy face and just a doom and gloom, uh, even if there are objectively difficult things in your life, but if you can't get past that and find happiness in your life, says Ramam, you will never have the highest and most transcendent spiritual 
experiences. So all of this is generally the value and virtue of happiness. But I want to spend our remaining time focusing on two subcategories which are also very important to highlight. Number one is the special obligation of simcha shel mitzvah. Not just a general attitude of simcha, but specifically to have a feeling of simcha, of happiness, while we're doing mitzvos. And this brings us to our parsha this week. In the tochacha, which of course is the scary description of the horrible uh, punishments that the Jewish people might unfortunately have to endure if they don't follow all the mitzvos, there's a somewhat shocking pasuk towards the end. Why is all this happening? Because you didn't worship Hashem out of happiness and gratitude for all that Hashem had done for you. Amazingly, this pasuk seems to be saying that even if you do the mitzvos, you might get punished. For sure you're going to get punished if you don't do the mitzvos. But ultimately, what was the real cause of the punishment? That they did the mitzvos but they didn't do them out of simcha. And this is really a shocking statement. We could deserve such terrible punishment because we did the mitzvot, just not with a smile on our face. But in fact, the Rambam brings us down l'halacha. In Hilchosukah Perches, says the Rambam, ha-simcha sh'yesamach adam a mitzvah, the simcha that a person has when they're doing mitzvot, avodah gadolahi. It's a big job. It's not always easy. The Ramam acknowledges that sometimes we're not in the mood or sometimes certain mitzvahs will speak to us, but maybe other mitzvahs won't move us or inspire us. So we have to work at it to find simcha in all of the mitzvahs. Says the Ramam, it's important that we do the work. Why? Because if we don't do that, if we do the mitzvahs, but we don't have the simcha, then unfortunately, says the Ramam, royally parimimeno, we could, God forbid, be eligible uh, and at risk for great punishment. And he quotes the Pasuk in our parsha as a proof text. So this is really underscoring and highlighting the importance of uh, having simcha not only generally, but specifically when one does a mitzvah. The Sefer HaCharedim quotes from the Arizal, the famed Jewish mystic and spiritual giant, that when asked, to explain how he was able to achieve such great heights in spiritual understanding and mysticism, he explained, in, in his own opinion, because every time he did a mitzvah, he had he was sameach basiyas kol mitzvah simcha gadol ein tachlis. He was unbelievably, uncontrollably happy every time he did a mitzvah, and he ascribed his success in general to that overall attitude and disposition of simcha while doing a mitzvah. So these are just a few sources of many that I could quote that highlight this special subcategory of the importance and the implications and significance of doing mitzvahs with the right attitude, that of simcha and of joy. And finally, one other uh, subcategory is specifically simcha shel limud ha-Torah, specifically learning Torah out of sense of happiness and joy. Uh, the End of Perk Yavos in Perk Vav has a very famous list of Memches Kenyane Torah, 48 attributes a person needs if they want to truly master Torah. And one of them, one of the early ones, uh, is Simcha, that you cannot genuinely and truly master Torah unless you come to it, uh, the study of Torah, out of a sense of joy, of pleasure, enjoying your learning. And many of the Mepharshim there in Perk Yavos give many practical benefits that one can have, that the student will have, from learning mitoch simcha. And it's really fascinating because I think they very much conform and correspond to edu- insights in modern educational uh, practice. But Mepharshim already point out, you see, practically speaking, a person will accomplish great things if they learn mitoch simcha. But lastly, the Egle Tal has a very famous point. He says it's not just a practical point. It's a matter of principle philosophy. The greatest, highest level of learning is to learn mitoch simcha.